We've been in this series called it Collide. It's just a three-week series. We're going to come to an end here. Just give you a quick recap. We're throwing around these ideas of God and family and culture. In the first week, we talked about how we ought to be influencing the next generation. And we said you need to remember and teach. And then last week, we looked at, well, how are we supposed to influence the culture around us? And we talked about how as individuals, we ought to be different. We ought to uh, be consistent and we ought to be ready to answer uh, anyone who might ask us about the hope that is within us. And, and today we're going to shift the focus inward, and we're going to ask, how should the church, how should our church respond to our culture? How should the church respond to our culture? And so we're going to be in First Peter chapter 4. And before we get there, maybe as you turn there, I want to show you a couple verses that maybe didn't make your Facebook feed this week, probably haven't seen a motivational poster with these type of verses on it. I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to give you the gist just for the sake of time. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And he says, Rejoice and be glad because they, prop, they persecuted the prophets too. And then in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples again, Hey, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then towards the end of this passage in John 15, he says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And now many of you are wondering why we're talking about suffering and persecution on Mother's Day. And we're not. We're not going to talk about suffering or persecution. But I wanted to point this out because this is the backdrop to First Peter. This is who Peter is addressing in the whole letter of First Peter. He's talking and he's writing this letter to a group of Christians that have been scattered and persecuted throughout the Roman Empire simply because they are Christians. Um, they are living in a culture that isn't not accepting nor understanding of Christianity. And Peter wants to encourage the people to stand firm on the truth and depend on God's grace through it all. And so this morning, we're going to try to draw a few parallels between how we ought to live today and how Peter called the church of his day to live as well. And while the American church certainly does not understand what it means to suffer or to be persecuted like the early church did, I think we can see similarities as we think about our culture where at best it's ignorant of the truths of Christianity and at worst it's openly hostile to our views. And so understanding that as we read these verses, the backdrop, the context of these verses is a suffering and persecuted people. We're going to look at just four verses here. First Peter 4, 7 through 11. Five verses. Will you pray with me? Do Lord, help us, help us understand uh, this passage. Help us. Um, hear your words this morning. Make it clear. We pray in your name. Amen. As we get into this, I am convinced that this whole series should have been at least eight weeks. And this one in particular, at least three, and we could probably spend the rest of the year on these 
truths that we're going to look at this morning. So I'm gonna, I know I'm going to give you a lot to kind of digest and, and, and think through and process through, and, and I hope that you'll, you'll take it and chew on it and wrestle with it beyond just this week. But so that being said, we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 7. Uh, I want you to know that this isn't my words. This is the words of God, so you don't have to argue with me. You can argue with God. And so I'm just hoping to faithfully expound the word to you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter begins, the end of all things is at hand. Title of the sermon, the end is near, based on those few words. And what Peter is doing is he's giving the believers the church context. He reminds them in the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 4 that Jesus came and Jesus suffered. And the suffering that Jesus endured was for our sake so that we might live for Him. And so as he's talking about suffering, he reminds them the end of all things is near. Jesus is coming back. He will return to judge both the living and the dead. And He will set all things right. And so what he's doing is giving the Christians a proper perspective about their suffering. That everything in this world, including their trials, including their suffering, is temporary. That it is fading and it is passing. And so no, we're not going to spend time talking about Armageddon. And we're not going to try to take out our calculators and open up the scriptures and try to give you a date the next time Jesus is coming back. Okay, That's not what we're going to do this morning. And that's not the point that Peter is trying to make. He's saying Jesus is coming back. And so we should live in light of that. The end is near. He wants to give them perspective. He wants them to think through how are you living and what are you living What will you tell Jesus when He returns? How will you explain the things you did while you lived on this earth? And I think Peter also knew that our tendency when we face trials and suffering, or maybe it's just me, is to try to avoid them. Right? Something hard comes my way. I start going through a little trial and I'm looking for the escape route as soon as possible. But I think he also realizes that for some people, there's a temptation to mask the problem, to hide, to ignore it, to avoid. Maybe there's a temptation to turn to the world to escape what we're dealing with. So we see this evidenced by people who turn to substances, right? Someone who starts to drink a little more. Someone who turns to those prescription pills. That's maybe an easy thing to see, but we also see it work out with people who maybe are dealing with something and to escape what they're dealing with, whatever trial, hardship, suffering they may have, they turn on the TV. And they pull up Facebook and they scroll through and they binge watch some shows on Netflix just so they can escape reality and just be entertained mindlessly. Or or maybe still some people run to a relationship or run to a person to try to get validation or try to cover up some sort of fear or insecurity. And I think Peter knows this is a tendency for a lot of people to turn to the world to escape our trials or our suffering. 
But Peter is reminding these Christians, he's saying, no, that's not what you're living for. And so he tells us by way of application that this world is not what we are living for. We need to turn to God instead of the temporary things of this world. And just because we're living in a culture that doesn't see eye to eye with Christianity, it doesn't negate our responsibility to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ. And if you read through the whole letter, which wouldn't take you long, I encourage you to do it. You see these themes, pursue godliness, pursue holiness, pursue Christ throughout the whole book. And then the question comes, well, what about when suffering comes? He says we must remember the end is near. But that doesn't mean it's time to freak out. It doesn't mean we sit on our roofs, put on our tinfoil hats, look at the sky and wait for Jesus. It doesn't mean that we can just throw off our responsibilities and do whatever we want because, hey, the end is near. No, that's not what Peter is advocating for at all. He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He say, no, we must remember that we live for something eternal and that we want to stay focused on what really matters. And what really matters is going to take us spending time in prayer that we would have right thinking and sound judgment. So what Peter does is he gives the church, this suffering and persecuted church, what I'm going to call three directives that we need to be practicing in our daily lives and especially in our churches. And I've called them directives because they're not just values and they're not just characteristics, although they are those things too. But they're directives, they're commands, they're things that that we ought to be pursuing and practicing daily. And I used imperatives last week. So this week we're going with directives. The first one is found in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, love earnestly. This is what we're supposed to do. Love one another. This isn't a new teaching. Jesus would have told Peter this Personally, we see it in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we can spend all morning and we can spend a whole nother sermon series on what it means to love. And we go to 1 Corinthians 13 and we can talk about all of those things. And we can talk about a, a mother's love because it's Mother's Day and all of the things that go with that. But here, Peter focuses on two things that I want to point out about what it looks like for Christians to love. The first thing he says is that he doesn't call us just to love, but he says we ought to love earnestly. And that implies that there is effort involved in loving one another. This word can be translated also, love one another fervently. Love one another without ceasing. This this word is derived from another word in the Greek, um, it's ekteno, which means to stretch or to extend. And I like this concept because what it tells us about how we love is that it's not easy, that it's going to stretch us, that it's going to extend our capacity, it's going to bring us beyond what we thought we could do. This is the type of love that the church is challenged to display to one another. 
This isn't a comfortable or a convenient love. right? This is a love that is intentional. It's going to take effort. It doesn't just stop at the bare minimum. It's a costly love. It's a love that is willing to make sacrifices. It's a love that's willing to go the extra mile. On a day like today, we do, we might do well to compare it to the love of a mother for her child. But remember who Peter is addressing. He's not just talking to a random group of people here. He's not just talking to mothers. He's talking to uh, the church. This is the kind of love that's supposed to be practiced by everyone who calls themselves a Christian. Everyone who is found in this building is called to love earnestly. So I bring you this question. Who in this room have you loved like that? Your family doesn't count and your mom doesn't count. Who in this room have you loved in this way? Are we not the church? Are we not called to do this? To love one another earnestly, fervently, in a way that stretches us? Who can you point to that says, yes, I love them, and it has stretched me, and it has cost me, and I have sacrificed, and I was eager to do it? Because this is the kind of love that our church is called. And if you're challenged, or maybe you're a little uncomfortable by that statement, I say, welcome to my week. This is what I've been dealing with. Because I have to do the same because I am part of the church. I stand here as one of you, hopefully convicted by the type of love that we ought to display. And some of you may have some objections to this idea. And you say, well, well, don't you know, there's a bunch of sinners in here. And these people aren't always the easiest people to love. And you know that person over there and what they've done and, and who they are? And it's funny that you should think that because that's exactly the next thing that Peter addresses in this verse. He says you are to love earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. And so what does this mean? It it sounds nice. And I think we could say it this way. We know that the church is full of imperfect and sinful people. But because we are called to love them, we're going to choose to think the best of them. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. We're going to overlook the things that would be easy to get upset or offended about. And instead, we're going to choose to love. Peter isn't advocating that we somehow ignore sin or encourage sin. But he is advocating a grace-based approach to other people. He is advocating for us, especially within the church, to show and extend love and grace. Why? Because the end is near. Because we're not called to live for ourselves, and we understand that the stakes are too high to be petty. This community of suffering believers, they've got enough problems on the outside world. The last thing that they need to do is bring more unnecessary conflict into the church. And we too are called to this same kind of love. 
where the love that we show each other actually makes a difference. And when people outside of our walls hear about how Chapel of the Lake loves people, their eyebrows are raised. Their ears perk up because it's different. So know that if you're going to be a church member here at Chapel of the Lake, you're going to be wronged. You're going to get offended probably at some point. When you're around a bunch of sinners, it's going to happen. You're going to get put off. Know that your preferences may not always be addressed and some people may choose to do things a little different than you would. But let's look for ways that we can extend grace. Let's call sin, sin, but let's be quick to forgive. Let's be quick to encourage. Let's think the best of one another. And remember that we are living for something more because the end is near. And so Peter, he moves to this practical outpouring of love, which is our second directive. We ought to show hospitality. This is verse 9. Pretty simple. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter says, This is how love expresses itself inside the church, through meeting the needs of others. Hospitality is actually a combination of two words. Affection and stranger. They come together in the Greek and they form this word hospitality. And so basically, you want to know the definition of hospitality? Look out, love, strangers, those around you. That's hospitality. And especially if we think about this first century persecuted church, it would be insanity for someone to, for a Christian to close their door on another Christian who needed help in their time of need or crisis even if they were strangers, because the bond and the purpose between believers through Jesus Christ is made evident through the love that we show each other, especially during times of crisis and hurting and suffering. And so Peter also puts this qualifier on show hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why did he have to put that in there? Right? It's like, there's many moms in the room, right? It's like the little kid. He say, go clean your room. Oh, I don't want to. And they go, but they do it, and they don't want to. That's grumbling, and you're not supposed to do it. And you're not supposed to do it if you're a Christian showing hospitality either. I think Peter understands that we might do what we're supposed to do because it's Sunday or because God said so. But what Peter's getting at is our attitude is just as important as our actions. I think he also knows maybe we try to avoid this issue of showing hospitality because it carries a certain amount of risk. And it certainly will cost us something. And again, we're talking about the early church that would have limited resources and a limited supply. But Peter didn't say, show hospitality if you have extra resources. Peter didn't say, well, show hospitality if you have an extra bedroom. Show hospitality, well, if you're not doing anything else better at the moment. 
No, He just says show hospitality and do it without grumbling. Because showing hospitality is not about you. And that when we live with the perspective of the end is near, the things of this world don't matter as much as these eternal virtues of love and hospitality. The question comes to you. Who have you shown hospitality to? But you may wonder, well, what does this really have to do with us? Because you're talking about the first century church that was persecuted and suffering. And I'm looking around here and I'm not seeing many needs that I need to meet. And we live in a pretty affluent community. And I'm not aware of any of you having any major crises going on. Well, you're right. We're not a particular suffering or persecuted church. But the charge still remains the same. Show hospitality. But in our culture, I think it looks a little different. And as I see our culture, I think we have not a persecution problem, but we have another just as big problem. We're living and we're fighting against a culture that promotes self-reliance, individualism, and a reluctance to ask for help. And while many of us see these things as virtuous, we're missing out on the call for community within the church. And so we, too, must ask ourselves, well, what does it really mean to show hospitality even in this affluent culture? And hospitality goes beyond just meeting needs, and it goes just beyond writing a check. Remember, we're talking about affection for strangers. And this word affection implies that you actually care about somebody. That word affection actually implies that if we care about people, that means that we're interested in people. And if we're interested in people, then we're going to get to know them. We're going to invite them into our homes. We're going to share a meal together. We're going to spend time outside of the church together. We're going to try to get to know some new people simply because they are part of our church and part of our community. Even if they're not in some crisis or hurting or suffering. But there's another aspect of this idea of hospitality that I think makes us uncomfortable. And that's that if we are called to show hospitality to everyone, that also means we are called to receive hospitality. And if I'm supposed to receive hospitality, well, that means I'm going to have to be open with people. And in our culture, we push this this concept of, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I can do it myself. And when we do that, there's a danger that we're hiding from the very community that we are called to engage in. We tend not to reach out. We tend not to make new connections. We tend not to have any deep or personal conversations. We don't want to ask any probing questions. We want to keep people at arm's length because we're happy keeping things on the surface for the sake of being comfortable. It's much easier to say, I'm fine, than it is, I need help. But here's the problem. You're not fine. And there are people in this room that are not fine. You need help. And there's people in this room that need help. Do you know how I know that? 
Because I'm a pastor. You know how I know that? Because I work with some of your kids. And they tell me things. Do you know how I know that? Because you're human. You have needs. You're going to need to ask for help. And if not today, the day will come. And it concerns me because somewhere along the way, our church has just become like the culture around us. And we've tried to hide our sins and hide our flaws and imperfections and needs just so we can say, I'm fine and we're comfortable and I don't need any of this community thing. But we're called to show hospitality and receive hospitality. And when we don't, we're either neglecting the real needs of people around us or we're neglecting our own personal needs. And they are both equally damaging, and I would propose that they're both equally wrong. And I would say to withhold good from someone is sin. It is selfish, and it is wrong. But I would also say to hide your needs, to hide your struggles from the church is also a sin. It's the sin of pride. And it's wrong. And Peter is showing us what the Christian community is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be a place full of a love that doesn't quit. A love that takes risks. A love that costs something. The church is called to be a place of transparency and vulnerability. The church is called to be a place where sins are confessed and forgiven, where needs are acknowledged and met, where burdens are shared and people are encouraged. But I'm, I'm afraid we've just forgotten this whole idea of eternal perspective, that the end is near, and instead we've just traded it for creature comforts, no matter how temporary they may be. But do you see how if we would just do these two things, love earnestly and show hospitality, that this would be attractive to the people around us? How counter-cultural it is to the me focus that's promoted? Do you see how if we would do these two things well, that we would stand out in our community, that we would have a greater opportunity for the gospel? But do you also see how this is costly? That it's going to take risk knowing that you are joining into a community of sinners that aren't perfect. That you will be asked to spend your time and your money and your resources for the people in this room. That you will need to be transparent and vulnerable and honest as you fellowship with people in this church. So why in the world would you do it if it's so costly? Because we know that the end is near. We know that Christ had called us out of this individualistic, me-first culture based on temporary things and pursue the things of Christ, the things of eternal purpose, the things that will matter when Christ does return to judge the living and the dead. What, who are you living for? I also say this with slight reservation. But it's true, and I'm preaching to the choir because you are here. I have two words written here. Show up 
If you want to experience this love and if you want to show this hospitality, and I would say if you want to engage in the community that Christ has called you to, you have to show up. You have to be present. And I'm not talking about this room for an hour on Sunday. To love earnestly and show hospitality happens outside of this room. And that's why we have Sunday school and home groups. And that's why we have picnics and barbecues. And that's why we encourage you to get to know one another and talk to people outside of this building. Because that's where Christianity happens. But you have to show up. It can't happen if you just show up on Mother's Day. It can't happen if you just show up on Christian. It can't even happen if you show up every week. But it certainly can't help happen if you never show up. Show up. But not just for church. Show up to be engaged in community. But Peter isn't done. And neither are we. Verse 10, he gives us our third directive. To serve faithfully. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter says, how are you to accomplish this love? And how are you to show this hospitality? By using the gifts that God has given you. You are not called to do it by yourself or on your own. He reminds the church, and therefore every believer since, that God has gifted everyone with a gift, with a spiritual gift. And not only does everyone have this gift as a believer, they are obligated to use that gift in the service of the church. And we can spend another sermon or another sermon series talking about all the different spiritual gifts and how that applies. But that isn't Peter's point. Peter's point is that you have been gifted. What's your gift? I don't know. Because I think all the gifts are unique. I think you have a little bit of this and you have a little bit of this and I have a little bit of this and it's all mixed in a little bit and that gives you your unique gift. And as such, there is no gift like your gift. But that also means that if you don't show up, if you don't serve, you're being disobedient to the purpose that the Spirit gave you that. But you're also robbing the body. You're robbing the church from your presence and your gifting. And Peter says the point You have received the gift. So use it. Use it to serve one another. And the nice thing about these spiritual gifts, you can't earn it. You can't ask for it. There's nothing you can do to get a better gift or a lesser gift. No. It's a product of God's grace. Which means that there are no exceptions and there are no excuses. God has gifted you specifically with that gift and you are to use it for the church and for His glory. You can go back and read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and you'll find that, hey, the gifts come from the same place. It's the Holy Spirit. And you have the power to use those gifts. It's the Holy Spirit. And the reason why you have those gifts is by grace for the edification, the building up of the church. So Peter says we are stewards of God's grace. And the way to be a good steward of God's grace is to use your gifts. And then he alludes to this idea of proper perspective that the end is near when he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus 
Christ. Eternal perspective. This is how we live like the end is near. We live for something greater. We don't just live for ourselves. We not only love earnestly, but we show hospitality. And we also invest into our community by serving faithfully with the gifts that God has so graciously given us. So I give us two questions to think about this week. We're not quite done. I have one more thing after that. Question to wrestle with this week. How well is our church, how well is Chapel of the Lake displaying the virtues of love, hospitality, and service? We need to be able to answer this. And number two, how can I contribute to make these virtues more noticeable in my life and in my church? What am I doing to contribute? How am I fulfilling God's call on my life? But if you remember, we started with this question. How should the church respond to our culture? If you've been listening, I haven't given you a list of responses, a list of things to go do in the culture. And what does that have to do with how the church should respond to our culture? I've given us three directives. And I say we have answered this question. How should the church respond to our culture? The church responds to the culture by simply being the church. May we put it better and we would say, the church responds to the culture by striving to be the church that we are called to be. It doesn't matter what is happening around us. It doesn't matter if you're in Florida or Montana or Lake St. Louis. As a Christian, as a believer, we are called to a certain way of living and a certain perspective. We're not called to be relevant to the culture. I'm afraid the church has become irrelevant in its desire to be relevant because we've gotten away from the truths of what the church should look like. And what the church should look like is one that loves, honest, that loves earnestly, shows hospitality, and serves faithfully. Jesus tells us, that we're called to be salt and light. He tells us that we are the light of the world, that we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So this is the collision between God and family and culture, that we keep an eternal perspective as we depend on Jesus Christ to transform us from the inside out, and we allow the culture to see the change. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, help us be the change they have called us to be. That we would be less focused on those around us, that we would be less focus on circumstances or trials or sufferings or culture or any other thing that would distract us from remembering that the end is near, that we live for things eternal, that we live for your glory and your honor. Lord, help us consider where our place is in your church. Help us consider how we love, how we care for others and how we serve. 
May it be for you and for your glory. It's in that name we pray. Amen.